Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 4th, 2022. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. And happy birthday to my dear wife, Melissa. I have one brief announcement to make before we begin our, or resume our Revelation commentary. That is that scheduling due to our travel last week, scheduling just didn't work out and we were not able to pre-record Saturday's program, which is sort of already prepared. It's a finish of, of the last part of the section of 100 proofs on the similarities between the Hebrew language and English and Latin and Greek. That will be recorded next week. So we will resume that series next week. I really screwed up, and I'll talk about this in the next 100 proofs. I really screwed up and reused some of the proof numbers without even noticing it. And we're actually a lot further ahead than I thought. We're on proof number 97. I don't often announce the actual proof number during the programming. So I don't think that's a big issue. But I renumbered the proofs on a website, and even though there are two proof number 37s, I that was way too long before I realized that and sort of ignored it. So there's sort of like a bonus proof. But we really are going to have about 105 proofs. So that series will resume next week, and hopefully I'll be able to finish it within the next month or so so that I could get on to... Other pressing projects before coming back on Saturday evenings with something else. If there are 105 proofs or 106 or, or whatever we have, it is what it is. And, of course, it's all for the video series with Truthvids has been publishing on YouTube, which is far more important to us because it's consolidated and and concise and it's easy for people that are not identity Christians to understand. He's been doing an excellent job with that. So that's the real purpose of our having done this series was so that he could gather all the material he needs to make a convincing 100 Proofs video series, which is also being posted at Christagenia as new segments come available and as I get time to post them, which is sometimes several weeks later. So that's all I have to say about that. This series will be wrapped up soon, but it's going to continue for at least another probably four to six weeks. It's hard for me to guess. It always is. Praise Yahweh the God of Israel. And now we will commence with our commentary on the revelation of Yahshua Christ. This is part five of this series, and this is part two of our presentation of the messages to the seven churches. No, they will not be finished this evening. We will finish chapter two of the revelation, and that will leave three more churches and... Chapter 3, hopefully next week. Yahweh God be willing. Presenting the first part of Revelation Chapter 2. 
And the messages to the assemblies, <coughs> excuse me, and the messages to the assemblies at Ephesus and Smyrna. We had encountered and discussed several concepts that are contained in those messages, which we believe are necessary to understand not only in relation to the Revelation, but also to the entire Bible, as well as to our lives as Christians today. First, although we are not told what sin it was that they had been committing, because the Ephesians had left their first love, as it was described, they then began to accept or to commit some sin from which they were commanded to repent. Then Christ had threatened that if they did not repent, that they would be punished. So it is evident that even Christians who profess and who profess Christ and who endure in his name, who reject false apostles and Nicolaitans, which we interpret as those professional priests who with pretense would rule over the people, and who are also even commended for not bearing evil, must nevertheless seek to maintain complete obedience to the gospel of Christ or face the consequences of punishment from God. This is absolutely contrary to the general belief of most Christians today, who basically claim that all one has to do, all one has to do is to believe in Jesus and perform some rituals in order to be saved. Having rejected false apostles, the Ephesians clearly believed the gospel as it was taught them by true apostles. So they must have believed in Jesus as today's denominal, denominational Christians would also claim to do. Yet Christ himself had warned them that they would be punished if they did not repent of their sin, that their lampstand would be removed from its place. Another thing which we have not yet discussed is an, ans an aspect of the words of Christ in regard to the works of the Nicolaitans where he had professed that I also hate. This situation also betrays the professions of denominational Christians who often claim that God is love, that Jesus is love, and that he is incapable of hate. There certainly are things which Jesus hates, deeds which Jesus hates, and even people which Jesus hates, as we shall see again later in the second chapter of the Revelation. Contrary to the criticisms of Christ directed at the assembly at Ephesus, we see that the assembly of Smyrna was not criticized. While they were commended for rejecting the Jews, those who claim to be Judeans, but who are actually the congregation of the adversary or synagogue of Satan. However, in spite of that lack of criticism, and in spite of their earthly poverty, on account of their having rejected the Jews, who are not 
truly of Israel, they were warned that the false accuser, or devil, would persecute them, by which they would suffer significantly. Here and elsewhere, and especially in Revelation chapter 12, it is evident that Satan and the false accuser are one and the same, and that both terms are also used collectively to describe the people known today as Jews. But for the assembly at Smyrna, abiding in Christ throughout those persecutions, they were promised the prize of life. Here we asserted that since the Greek word Smyrna is ointment, that the key to understanding this message is the realization that the assembly at Smyrna acknowledged and maintained the anointing which the children of Israel had received from God. And for that reason, they had also been able to recognize the Jews as devils, which they truly are, and to reject them, as all Christians should. We also demonstrated, from the writings of Tertullian, Minucius Felix, and even a remark by the earlier Roman historian Tacitus, how those same Jews mentioned by Christ here in Revelation chapter 2 were indeed the instigators of the Roman persecutions of Christians in a pattern which we also noted from the book of Acts in our Bibles. The Christian apologist Minucius Felix referred to them as demons just as Christians should continue to consider them today. In that manner, the words of Christ here in the Revelation are demonstrated to have been fulfilled and are also proven to have been completely accurate. In this message, we also see that Christians are destined to suffer, even if they do not sin, simply for being Christians, which is a message found throughout both the Gospel and the Revelation as Christ had suffered for his rejection of the Jews. Christians should also expect to suffer, and in the end, they shall please Yahweh their God and Christ. When I say Yahweh their God and Christ, I am meaning that Yahweh is our God and Yahweh is our Christ. This we read in John chapter 15. In words attributed to Christ, If society hates you, know that it hated me before you. If you were from of society, society would have loved its own. But because you are not from of society, but I have chosen you out of society, for this reason society hates you. Remember the word which I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they have persecuted me, they shall also persecute you. So it's no wonder that standing up to these Jews who are actually the synagogue of Satan, that the assembly at Smyrna would be persecuted by the devil, by those same Jews, for that alone. We see that same pattern today. Then in 1 Peter chapter 4, we read, For not any among you must suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler in the matters of others. But if 
as a Christian, you must not be ashamed, but you must honor Yahweh by this name, because the time of judgment is to begin for the house of Yahweh. But if first for us, what is the end for those who are disobedient to the good message of Yahweh? Which is everyone else in the world besides the white children of Israel who became Christians. Once again we read in Luke chapter 6, Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they separate from you, and they reproach and they cast out your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in accordance with these same things did their fathers do to the prophets. No, that does not prove that their fathers were Israelites. It was the priests of Baal and the Edomites and the aliens infiltrating into ancient Israel who had persecuted the prophets. But this is also absolutely contrary to the attitudes of denominational Christians today who place Jews on pedestals, worshipping Jews rather than Jesus, and in turn they earn for themselves a small share in some of the comforts of this world. In the end, they shall not please God. Now we shall commence with the messages to the seven assemblies, the third of which is for the Christians at Pergamos. This is Revelation chapter 2 verse 12, just where we had left off in our last presentation. And to the messenger of the assembly in Pergamos write, Thus says he having the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, <clears throat> where the throne of the adversary is, and you possess my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was slain before you, where the adversary dwells. So we see that the throne of Satan at this time is in Pergamos, where, the, where Satan dwells. That doesn't mean that Satan doesn't dwell, that Jews don't dwell anywhere else. But this special note is made of Pergamos. And we can only conjecture the reason. As for the two-edged sword, that represents the fact that the judgment of God is in the hands of Joshua Christ. Pergamos, which is sometimes called Pergamon or Pergamum. In the Greek lexicons, it's always Pergamos. Pergamos was originally the name of the citadel of ancient Troy. But eventually, the word came to describe any citadel. This later city, called Pergamos, was the seat of the famous Italid kingdom of the 3rd and 2nd centuries B.C. However, before Lysimachus, who was one of the successors of Alexander the Great, had enlarged the city in 301 B.C., it seems to have been obscure as it is not mentioned in any earlier writings. Later, around 230 B.C., King Attalus I, it's after him that we have these these labels, Italid Kingdom, the Kingdom of Attalus and his descendants, 
and Italid or Italic kings. So around 230 BC, King Attalus I of Pergamus defeated the invading Galatahi, the Germanic tribes which had invaded Anatolia in the early 3rd century BC. And the Galatahi, who had occupied Phrygia, ancient Phrygia, several decades earlier, had been raiding and pillaging the Greek cities of Anatolia. So they were defeated in 230, and from that time, the Galatahi were confined to the portion of the ancient land of Phrygia, which they had already inhabited, which by then may have already become known as Galatia. If not, it would be known as Galatia from this time. The Italid kings, Attalus I and his descendants, were very wealthy, and Pergamus was a treasury of great riches. The city was also a center of worldly learning, and Strabo states that it was well populated with all sorts of philosophical sects. Mark Antony was said to have sent 200,000 volumes to Alexandria from the library at Pergamus. That's quite a number of books. Before the dignity was transferred to Ephesus in 27 B.C., Pergamus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia, and it had a large <clears throat> and famous altar which was recently excavated by archaeologists and believed to be dedicated to Zeus. With certainty, it dates to the time of the Italic kings, and its building is attributed to Eumenes II, who died in 159 B.C. The staircase up to the altar was 20 meters wide, the structure is over 35 meters wide and 33 meters deep. The base was decorated with a frieze depicting the battle between the gods and the giants, a famous Greek myth which certainly seems to have been handed down from the Old Testament scriptures. Pergamus was also a center of the worship of Asclepius, the ancient pagan Greek god of medicine and healing. And it was therefore a center for pharmakia, or sorcery. While there were more famous temples of Asclepius, in Epidaurus and in Cos, the Asclepius cult of Pergamus was very large, strong, and influential. Even a casual knowledge of the history of these ancient cities may help one to appreciate the environment and the challenges which ancient Christians had faced in the pagan world, as true Christians face those same challenges once again today, because we are also living in a majority pagan world, even if they claim to be Roman Catholics or Greek or Eastern Orthodox they may have some Christian values, but they basically act as pagans. And that counts also for modern Protestant denominations. With all this, there is not a meaningful reference to Pergamus or any reference to the modern Antipas in the early Christian writings. Neither did Livy Theodore Siculus or Strabo 
have anything of particular significance to say about Pergamus, which may give deeper insight into any of the statements of Yahshua Christ found here, such as the description of the city as the place where the throne of the adversary was located. Because of its circumstances as a capital city and the meaning of its name, this description of Pergamos seems to point to those international merchants and money changers who have for many ages infested every significant city. And Pergamos was for a long time the principal city of Roman Asia, a very wealthy city in a very wealthy Roman province. Fittingly, since Pergamus derives its name from the word which the Greeks had used to describe a citadel, which was typically a towering fortress within a city. It may therefore evoke images of the Genesis chapter 11 account of the Tower of Babel. And by extension, it may also evoke an image of Mystery Babylon. This is even more fitting as Satan is said to have had a seat there. And since the assembly of Pergamus was warned not to tolerate those who teach men to commit fornication or race mixing, the way of Balaam, which Mystery Babylon forces upon the entire world today through multiculturalism and diversity, these things are odious to God. At the very least, in the name Pergamus, in the stature and history of the city, and in this description, there is a warning that the powerful citadels of wealthy cities would be havens for Satan, for the international Jews. This evokes the words of Balaam in Numbers chapter 24. And he looked on the Kenites, and took up his parable, and said, Strong is thy dwelling place, and thou puttest thy nest in a rock. As Christ had attested in Luke chapter 11 and in John chapter 8 and elsewhere, his adversary certainly did descend from those same Kenites, the children of Cain. But the Jews who opposed Christ had also descended from Esau, as Paul of Tarsus explained in Romans chapter 9, and as the Judean historian Flavius Josephus related in detail. And in an oracle concerning Edom, we read in Jeremiah chapter 49, in part, Thy terribleness has deceived thee, and the pride of thine heart. O thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, that holdest the height of the hill, Though thou shouldest make thy nest as high as the eagle, I will bring thee down from thence, saith Yahweh. So to me, both of these passages, Numbers chapter 24 and Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 16, both of those passages indicate that the children of the devil, the adversaries of Christ, would be dwelling in high strongholds, which we see in city citadels, in the citadels of cities. 
This also evokes the words of Paul of Tarsus, where he wrote in chapter 6 of his Epistle to the Ephesians, warning his readers to put on the full armor of Yahweh, for you to be able to stand against the methods of the false accuser. Because for us the struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against realms, against authorities, against the rulers of the order of this darkness, against the spiritual things of wickedness among the heavenly places. In the ancient world, heaven was a term for the seats of government and power, which is also represented by a citadel. Heaven was an allegorical term in Mesopotamian literature for the seats of government and power. Furthermore, this evokes Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Indeed, walking in the flesh, we do not serve in accordance with the flesh. For the arms of our warfare are not fleshly, but through Yahweh they are able to destroy strongholds, those citadels where Satan lives, destroying reasonings and every bulwark, raising itself up against the knowledge of Yahweh. Paul's words also in turn evoke the account of the building of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And taking captive every thought into the obedience of the anointed, the anointed meaning the collected children of Israel, the collective children of Israel, also being in readiness to avenge all disobedience whenever you shall have fulfilled your obedience. Another appeal to the necessity for Christians to keep the commandments of Christ. Once again, we see in those words the importance of obedience to Christ if we are to overcome the devil. So even more importantly, in relation to these observations, is the statement made here by Christ that Pergamos, which means citadel, is the location of the throne of the adversary, or as it is in the King James Version, Satan's seat. The revelation was recorded by John not any earlier than 96 AD when he was released from his exile to Patmos and had returned to Ephesus. Both the city of Jerusalem and Herod's temple had been destroyed by the Romans nearly three decades earlier in 70 AD. But before that, as he wrote his second epistle to the Thessalonians from Corinth around 50 or 51 AD, Paul had described Satan as having been seated in the temple in Jerusalem. Using verbs of the present tense, Paul wrote in chapter 2 of that epistle, in part, warning his readers that you should not be deceived by anyone in any way because if apostasy had not come first, and the man of lawlessness been revealed, the son of destruction, he who is opposing and exalting himself above everything, said to be a god or an object of worship, and so he is seated in the temple of Yahweh, representing himself that he is a god. A little further on in that chapter, Paul wrote that the presence of this entity was in accordance with the operation of the adversary. So Satan, 
which we would interpret as a collective term for those Jews who opposed Christ, had evidently moved his seat to Pergamos after the temple at Jerusalem was destroyed. Now he sits in London, New York, Kiev, Moscow, Paris, and every other significant city in the West, and also in most of the small towns in the form of your local bankers and lawyers. As for the reference to Antipas the martyr, the name Antipas seems to have been at least somewhat common among the Greeks, as it appears in the writings of Josephus, where it was also used by certain members of the family of Herod. In relation to this passage, Bertrand Compare and others have made the error of interpreting the name Antipas as having meant against the father, and extending that interpretation to claim that it meant against the Pope. While that is quaint, it is also novel. The word has no such meaning in ancient Greek. The meaning was assigned by unknown lexicographers, but not until at least 1150 A.D., in a work known as the Etymologicum Magnum. We should not trust that the work was free of any interpretative clerical influences. There is no known earlier evidence that such a meaning of the word antipas existed, and it should not be readily accepted. The Greek words papas and papas with an O, O-S at the end instead of A-S, were used affectionately for father and grandfather. And pater means father. In the large ninth edition of their Greek-English lexicon, in two separate ent- entries for the word pas, secondary entries also, they're totally separate from the main, the definition of the main word pas. In two separate entries, Liddell and Scott explain that in certain obscure instances, the word pas, which generally means all or every, was used in place of both pater and pahis. Pahis means son. The citations they provide explain that the contraction of pahis to pas is found only in two inscriptions from Cyprus. But the contraction of pater to pas is found only in that 12th century etymological magnum, over 1100 years after, or nearly 1100 years, I should say, after the revolution, the revelation was recorded. So we reject the claims here that Antipas could have meant either against the father or even against the son, an interpretation for which there is somewhat greater evidence, as this particular Antipas is described as a faithful man, and even as a martyr. He wouldn't stand against the father or the son, and be commended in such a way. As a digression, it is possible that Compare may have gotten his idea from the Antipas mentioned in Josephus' Antiquities, Book 14, who had changed his name to Antipater, 
The name Antipater was also used by certain Greeks. However, if Antipas meant against, or more likely in this place, in this case, in place of the father, such a name change by Herod would not have been necessary. In other words, if the word Antipas means what Compare says it means, then why would this Herod have changed it to something that explicitly means in place of the father, which is what Antipater means? The Herod in the Gospels, not Agrippa in the book of Acts, but the Herod in the Gospels, is only called Herod in all of the Gospels, but his full name was Herod Antipas. Antipas was a name which was probably used by Greeks, as well as by the Greek-speaking Judeans, or Edomites. However, I can't find an example, or at least I couldn't find an example of that in time for this program. Of course, I did find other examples of Antipater. There was actually one notable Antipater who was from Western Anatolia and I believe was connected to this same city of Pergamos in history earlier than the Revelation. According to Liddell and Scott, pas is all or every or when it's used of only one object, the whole. And the preposition, <clears throat> anti, primarily means against or opposite, and then instead of or in place of. So the more natural meaning of the name Antipas is in place of all, or perhaps against all. However, here it seems to be a portrayal of the true Christian martyr, who withstands all opposition to Christ, or who withstands the world which is opposed to Christ. Antipas, against all. But there is no specific records in the early Christian writings of an actual martyr named Antipas. So, it seems that the name here is used as an example and its actual meaning is the key to understanding the example. Now, for another and more lengthy digression, and because Pergamus is a subject here, perhaps it is fitting to discuss the title Pontifex Maximus, which is still used by the popes of Rome, and an error regarding the origin of that title, which has been frequently repeated by identity Christians. Once again, Bertrand Compare is among many others in Christian identity who have made this error, following the 19th century Protestant critic of the Roman Catholic Church, Alexander Hislop, in his book, The Two Babylons, where he claimed that the title Pontifex Maximus had come to Rome through Pergamus, with Rome having inherited it from Attalus III upon his death in 133 BC. This is easily disproven from the classical writers, and here we shall offer examples from two of them. 
The first is Diodor Siculus, from whom there are two citations. In chapter 5 of his seventh book, Diodorus explained that Julius, or Julius, if you will, the legendary founder of the Julian line and ancestor of the famous Gaius Julius Caesar and his kindred, had gained the title Pontifex Maximus after he was bested in an election for the kingship by Silvius after the death of Ahenius. So we see that Diodorus believed the title to have been in Rome since even before its inception. Ahenius died about 350 or so years before Rome was founded, according to the popular chronologies. Whether one wants to accept the myth or not is of no consequence, since our second citation from Diodorus is a historical account, which is from about 202 B.C., in the fragments of his 27th book, where he wrote that as Pontifex Maximus, he, meaning P. Licinius Crassus Dives, was obliged by reason of his religious duties not to absent himself from the vicinity of Rome. So we see that there was a Pontifex Maximus in Rome in 202 B.C. That's 70 years before Rome had inherited the kingdom of Pergamus from the last of the Italian kings. He had no issue. Eumenes II, or I'm sorry, Attalus III, had no issue. He had no sons, so he left his kingdom to the people of Rome. Our second ancient source is the Roman historian Livy who mentions the title of Pontifex Maximus in many historical contexts long before the death of Attalus III of Pergamus. The first of which is in an account which includes a certain Quintus Furius, who had held the office around 447 B.C. This is from Livy's Book 3, Chapter 54 in an explanation which also explains that one responsibility of the Pontifex Maximus was to hold elections. There we read in part, upon a revolt by the soldiers and plebeians, the plebeians or plebs as they're often called, was the lowest class of free citizens. And he wrote, a decree was passed by the Senate that the decemvirs should abdicate the magistracy at the earliest possible moment, that Quintus Furius, the Pontifex Maximus, should hold an election of plebeian tribunes, and that no one should be made to suffer for the succession of the soldiers and the plebs. This is long before the death of Attalus III, and there are other accounts which demonstrate that Pontifex Maximus was the title for the high priest, or the head of the pontiffs, which were the priests of ancient Rome. And they had many other civic duties. They kept the calendar, for instance, and determined the 
calendar for each month, what days the markets would be open, what days the markets would be closed, what days there were holy Roman religious observances. They kept all that and basically organized Roman society. Both Theodorus and Livy lived and died long before the Revelation was written, and neither had any reason to lie about the antiquity of the title. Julius Caesar was elected Pontifex Maximus of Rome in 63 BC and held the office until he was assassinated. After him, it was held by Marcus Ahimilius Lepidus and by Augustus Caesar after Lepidus died in 12 BC. It is quite clear that the Roman popes took the title of Pontifex Maximus from Imperial Rome and that the title is not at all Christian. But it did not come from Pergamus, and it did not come from ancient Babylon, which was another claim made by Hislop. The word pontifex is from a very specific Latin compound word, meaning bridge maker. In the Middle Ages, many bishops of the Roman Catholic Church used the title pontifex or pontiff. Today, the popes of Rome claim the title pontiff or Pontifex Maximus. Variations include Sumus Pontifex or Romanus Pontifex, which are Supreme Pontiff or Roman Pontiff. By these titles, the bishops and the Pope make a claim to be the bridge builder and even the greatest or supreme bridge builder to God. However, the true Christian needs no such bridge to God, which is fully evident in many scriptures. But plainly, where Paul wrote that God is one, and there is one mediator of God and men, a man, Yahshua Christ. That passage from 1 Timothy chapter 2 negates any claims of legitimacy as Christians by either the popes or their priests. Furthermore, it is the word pope which comes from the Greek word papas, or father, in spite of the fact that Christ had warned his disciples that you shall not call your father upon the earth, for one is your father the heavenly. Now Christ has a more severe warning for this assembly at Pergamos. But I have a few things against you. Because you had there those holding the teaching of Balaam, who had taught Balak to put a trap before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. Thusly you have also those holding the teaching of the People conquerors, or Nicolaitans, in like manner. The King James Version has, which thing I hate, rather than in like manner. At the end of verse 15. In all of the older manuscripts, the word translated as in like manner is omoyas, which is generally like or resembling, and which may be translated in a variety of ways, similar ways, in various contexts. 
But the translators of the King James Version seem to have followed the minority of Koine Greek manuscripts from Andreas of Caesarea, which had the phrase, Omoyas homiso, and which they translated as, which thing I hate. The phrase would better have been translated as, which I hate likewise. But in any event, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans must have been something other than the teachings of Balaam. The Christians at Pergamos kept fellowship with men who held the teachings of Balaam, and, in like manner, they kept fellowship with men who held the teachings of the Nicolaitans, but the teachings themselves must have been different. We have already discussed the Nicolaitans at length, so here it is fitting to discuss the teaching of Balaam. Here in this message to the assembly at Pergamos, we see a warning concerning both things sacrificed to idols and fornication, which is race mixing or miscegenation in one of its forms. Other illicit sexual acts may be considered fornication, but race mixing and miscegenation certainly are a form of fornication, and that is the form which is being spoken of here in relation to Balaam. We shall see a similar warning in the message to the assembly at Theatira, which is the very next of these seven messages. The fact that the word fornication describes race mixing is evident in the account of Numbers chapters 20 through through 25, where it is described that Balaam, a prophet from Pethor, and in spite of what some Bible dictionaries state, Pethor, the location of this particular Pethor cannot be ascertained. Balaam, a prophet from Pethor, was hired by the king of Moab to curse the children of Israel. However, every time he tried to curse them, he could only utter blessings instead. This Balaam was certainly not an Israelite, and the actual location of Pethor is impossible to determine, at least with the knowledge that we have currently. Once Balaam failed in his attempts to curse Israel. Having blessed them instead, he he departed, as it is recorded at the close of Numbers chapter 24. Then, immediately thereafter, in chapter 25, it is recorded that Balak, the king of Moab, had the women of his tribe go out to seduce the men of Israel. But the entire account that Balaam had actually instructed Balak to do this, is not related to us in the book of Numbers, except later, where it is alluded to in Numbers chapter 31, where it says, Behold, these caused the children of Israel, through the counsel of Balaam, to commit trespass, against Yahweh in the matter of Peor. 
and there was a plague among the congregation of Yahweh. Further details are filled in by later scriptures. In Micah chapter 6 we read, O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of Yahweh. Then in Second Peter chapter 2, where the apostle wrote of men whom he described as natural brute beasts and related to the fallen angels. We read of them, abandoning the straight road they have wandered astray, following in the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who had loved the wage of unrighteousness. The apostle Jude also wrote of the same fallen angels in verse 11 of his short epistle, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. So these things all being related, the references to a race-mixing event in Numbers chapter 25, and the true nature of these sins, where it is described in Numbers chapter 25, clearly elucidate for us that this was indeed a race-mixing event which was counseled by Balaam. So that is the teaching of Balaam, which is fornication. Paul of Tarsus also affirms this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he described the crime behind this event as fornication. There he wrote, Neither should we commit fornication, just as some of them had committed fornication, and in one day 23,000 had fallen. The only event which Paul could have been referring to is that which is recorded in Numbers chapter 25. The children of Israel were to be a separate people, and that admonishment still holds true today comparing Exodus chapter 19 verse 5, Titus chapter 2 verse 14, and 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. I won't be repeating those scriptures this evening. The ancient Baal cults, cults, Baal cults, were fertility cults, and acts of sexual intercourse were integral to the pagan worship of such idols. Citing part one of our 2006 essay, Broken Cisterns, Herodotus writes of Bel, or Baal, whom the Greeks equated with their Zeus, and the sacred precinct of that idol in Babylon. On the topmost tower, this is Herodotus from the Histories, chapter 1, or I should say book 1, chapter 181. The chapters in the books of Herodotus are really mostly a paragraph or two. On the topmost tower, there is a spacious temple, and inside the temple stands a couch of unusual size, richly adorned with a golden table by its side. There is no statue of any kind set up in a place nor was the chamber occupied of nights by anyone but a single native woman, who, 
as the Chaldeans, the priests of this God, affirm, is chosen for himself by the deity out of all the women of the land. The historian goes on to relate an identical practice in Thebes in Egypt in the temple of Theban Zeus, or Amman, in chapter 182 of that first book. Now, it should be common sense to most men, Christian and otherwise, that Bel himself, or Baal himself, certainly did not appear each night to some woman in this temple. Even Herodotus said of this, but I for my part do not credit it that the God comes down in person. And that was much to the credit of Herodotus. But evidently some man must have entered into these chambers, and quite possibly someone pretending to be Bell. Tertullian, the second century defender of the Christian faith, writes, Then if I add, and the conscience of every man of you will recognize it as readily, if I add that in the temples, adulteries are arranged, that between the altars the pander's trade is plied, that quite commonly in the very vestries of temple keeper and priest, under those same holy fillets, crowns, and purple garments, the same outfits worn by the pagan priests were worn by the later priests of the Roman Catholic Church and even of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Under those same holy fillets, crowns, and purple garments, while the incense burns, lust is gratified. And what was actually going on was that some man who spotted some woman in the pagan temple, in the community, whom he lusted for, <clears throat> whether she was married or not, it didn't matter, he would go to the priest and give him a sum of money, and the priest would arrange for him to play the part of Baal on some particular night, and the priest would tell the woman, hey, Baal chose you tomorrow night. It's your turn. You're going to be special. And she would gladly comply because that was her pagan belief system. That was her community, and she had to comply to remain in the community. <clears throat> Later in that same book of his histories, in chapter 199, Herodotus described a custom upheld by the cult of Aphrodite at Babylon, which seems to be the Canaanite idol Ashtaroth of Scripture where every woman was required to, by law, to sit in the temple until she was chosen by an interested man. The man could give her any amount of money, small or large, and she would have to accept it and lie with him in intercourse, turning the money over to the temple of the idol. The account is corroborated in the apocryphal Epistle of Jeremiah, verses 40 through 44, and also by Strabo of Cappadocia, who wrote, and in accordance with a certain oracle, all the Babylonian women have a custom, and I don't know why woman is singular there in the version I'm quoting from the Loeb Classical Library, probably a typographical error, 
and in accordance with a certain oracle, all the Babylonian women have a custom of having intercourse with the foreigner. The woman going to a temple of Aphrodite with a great retinue and crowd, and each woman is wreathed with a cord around her head. The man who approaches a woman takes her far away from the sacred precinct, places a fair amount of money upon her lap, and then has intercourse with her. And the money is considered sacred to Aphrodite. That's in Book 16, Chapter 1 of Strabo's Geography. Citing Part 2 of our Broken Cisterns essay for one portion of a paragraph, further support for these assertions is found in the interpreter's one-volume commentary on the Bible by Charles M. Lehman on page 455, which makes the following comment concerning Hosea chapter 4, verses 10 through 19. The absurdity of Baal worship. The whole harlotrous system of Baal fertility rites is utterly ineffectual as well as degrading. Its purpose is to provide fertility for human beings, flocks, and crops. But though the people play the harlot, in other words, carry on the sexual fertility acts at the shrine, they do not multiply. Despite woman's usual secondary place in ancient society, there will be no double standard, for the men are responsible for the shame of cult prostitution. It is they who require their daughters to become cult prostitutes, literally holy women. And further on, concerning Hosea chapter 5 verse 7, it says, In their bow worship they give birth to alien children, the offspring of sexual cult rites. For Hosea chapter 5 verse 7 says, They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children. Now, we may understand how the eating of things sacrificed to idols is directly related to the acts of race mixing and other types of whoredom generally identified as fornication. Evidently, the church at Pergamos had men in its congregation who were advocating such fornication, which is condemned in the gospel and throughout the epistles of Paul as well as those of the other apostles. Now Christ demands that this assembly repent of these sins. And in verse 16, Therefore repent, but if not, I will come to you quickly, and I shall make war with them by the sword of my mouth. We cannot tell from history how such a war was waged. As we have already explained that there are no significant references to the Church of Pergamos found in the writings of the early so-called Church Fathers. However, Pergamos had ultimately suffered an even worse fate than that of Ephesus, as it was largely destroyed by an earthquake in 262 AD, and shortly thereafter it was sacked by the Goths. But in spite of this, there is a message of encouragement. And from verse 17, He having an ear must hear what the Spirit says to the assemblies. To he who prevails, I shall give to him of the, hid, of the hidden 
manna. And I shall give to him a white stone, and written upon the stone a new name, which no one knows except he receiving. The hidden manna seems to be a reference to the bread of life, which Christ had described to his disciples in John chapter 6, where we read, Then Yahshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses did not give to you bread from heaven, but my Father gives to you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of Yahweh, the bread of Yahweh is he descending from heaven and giving life to the society. Then they said to him, Prince, always give to us this bread. Yahshua said to them, I am the bread of life. He coming to me shall not hunger, and he believing in me shall not ever thirst. There is no pertinent reference which we have found in the Old Testament from which to describe the nature of the white stone. But the word for stone, which is used here, is Psephus. Psephus is P-S-E-P-H-O-S. I say Psephus because the E is an eta and not an epsilon. So I would pronounce that as an A-Y. A. As Strong's also suggests in his Greek pronunciation guide, which I've always adhered to because out of all of the pronunciation guides for ancient Greek that I've seen, the one presented by Strong's certainly makes the most sense. The word for stone is Pesaphus. I'll try to pronounce that P in the P-S. Where everywhere else that the word stone appears in the New Testament, it is from the words lithus, lithus, I should say, and petros. Petros is stone. It's where we got the name Peter. Lithus is also stone. And it's actually where we got the name for lithography. Perhaps the original typesetting kits were carved from stone. I don't know. I don't know that. But there must be a reason why we have that word lithography, right? From lithus. In contrast to the common stones, a psaphis is a small round stone or a pebble. The word was used to describe gemstones. But more often, it was used to describe the stones which had been used from classical Greek times for voting. When a jury trial was held, each juror had a black stone and a white stone and deposited one or the other upon deciding whether the accused was innocent or guilty. The verb, psephophoreo, which literally means to bear a psaphis or a stone, was used to describe the act of giving one's vote. The white stone, indicating a lack of guilt, where it is mentioned here, it signifies the mercy of Christ, which accounts each Christian who prevails as being innocent. 
while the stones which the Greeks used for voting had no names written upon them, neither can it be determined what name is being described here. It's a mystery until we get there. This ends the message to the assembly at Pergamos, and the message for the assembly at Theatira, which I would rather pronounce Theatira, follows next. While Paul of Tarsus is not recorded as having been to Thuatira, it is very likely that he passed through the city in his travels. It was also the home of Lydia, the seller of purple whom Paul and Silas had first encountered in Philippi, where she had lived at the time, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 16. While it is not explicitly mentioned in the account, Luke, having been in Paul's company, was left behind with Lydia as Paul and Silas departed from Philippi, and evidently Luke remained there with her for several years, not departing until he left to meet Paul in the Troad, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 20. From that time, Luke evidently remained with Paul until his death nearly five years later. Here the assembly is evidently commended because its more recent works are even greater than its earlier works, which seems to indicate that they had gotten even more committed to their faith as time progressed. And to the messenger of the assembly in Thuatira, write, Thus says the Son of Yahweh, he having his eyes as flames of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, and your love and faith, and righteousness and patience, and your last works are greater than the first. The name Thuatira apparently means heavenly sacrifice, although Strong's Concordance simply lists the word as being of uncertain derivation not venturing a meaning, and neither does Thayer, Joseph Thayer, in his Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. Other lexicons define it to mean odor of affliction. We do not agree with that definition, even if odors rising up into the heavens were a product of the sacrifices. In Greek, thua, is a prefix form of thuus, or sacrifice. Liddell and Scott inform us that a thuactus is a sacrificing priest, and a thuapax is a temple robber. By itself, thua is the feminine form of thuan, a burnt sacrifice. According to the intermediate Liddell and Scott lexicon, the word tyros is an epic form of teras, which was used by Homer, but found only in the plural, tyria, and it meant the heavenly constellations or signs. And that is how we prefer to interpret tyra here. However, it may have been taken from the verb tyro, which means to rub hard, to wear away, to wear out, or to distress. So in Greek, Thuatira may mean heavenly sacrifice or perhaps 
distressed sacrifice or sacrifice of distress or something similar. And that is where the those other lexicons would attain that odor of affliction definition from. Which, if it said sacrifice of affliction, I would find it more acceptable. The Greeks had a particular word for odor. Osme was one of them. I think they had two words for odor, and I can't remember the second one at this moment. The city Thuatira was situated by the traditional borders of Lydia and Mysia, two districts in western Anatolia. Mysia actually became the name of the province, I should call it, the district which encompassed the Troad. Lydia was to the south and east. According to Strabo, who cited Homer, in the earliest times, the Mysians were a Thracian tribe who lived near the Danube River. The Thracians, called Tiras in the King James Version of Genesis chapter 10, but if you look at the Hebrew transliteration by Strong in Strong's Concordance, it's very, it's almost identical to Thrace. It's Thyres or Thyrace. Thrace. So they were a Japhethi tribe which dwelt in Europe, north of Greece, and near the Black Sea. Ancient Thrace is now divided between modern Bulgaria, Greece, and Turkey. So the Mysians were colonists of the Thracians, who came to Anatolia. A 6th century etymologist, Stephanus of Byzantium, stated that the city was originally called Polapia, but renamed by Seleucus I Nicator, early in the 3rd century BC, one of the early Seleucids, after the Greek word for daughter, which is Thugater, a claim which is disputed and which we do not accept. I cannot accept that Thuatira is derived from Thugater. Strabo of Cappadocia mentioned Thuatira and also described some of the region in which these churches were found in Book 13 of his Geography, where he wrote, As one proceeds from the plain and the city towards the east, one comes to a city called Apollonia, which lies on an elevated site, and also towards the south to a mountain range, on crossing which, on the road to Sardis, one comes to Thuatira. On the left-hand side, a settlement of the Macedonians, which by some is called the farthermost city of the Mysians. On the right is Apollonis, which is 300 stadia distant from Pergamum, and the same distance from Sardis, and it is named after the Kizikane Apollonis. Now, from the Palatine, Palatine Anthology, an anthology of ancient Greek inscriptions, we learn that she, this Apollonis, was the wife of 
Attalus I, the king of Pergamus. So he must have built that city and named it after her. Next one comes to the plain of Hermas and to Sardis. The country to the north of Pergamum is held for the most part by the Mysians. I mean the country on the right of the Abeatahi, as they are called. Some Greek subtribe or Mysian subtribe or Lydian subtribe, perhaps. I didn't look it up. On the borders of which is the Epictetus or Phrygian Epictetus, as far as Bithynia. And that's from Book 13 of the Loeb Classical Library Edition, Chapter 4. So here we learn that Thuatira was at least mostly inhabited by Macedonians, or Macedonians, I would prefer, as a colony from the early years of the Hellenistic period. Now Yahshua Christ has a severe warning for the assembly at Thuatira. But I have against you that you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and teaches and deceives my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I have given her time in order that she would repent, yet she did not wish to repent from her fornication. And Jezebel is in the form Jezebel in Greek, because there was no J, and the I, when it opens a word and is followed by a vowel, was generally pronounced as a Y, very much like we have in German today. Where the King James Version has the phrase, a few things, in verse 20, it seems to have followed a variation found in the Latin Vulgate and only a few late Greek manuscripts, including that of the medieval scholar Stephanus, also known as Robert Stn, which was published in 1550 AD, and later, having been used by the printer Elsevier, who I believe is a Jew, became known as the Textus Receptus. We find that the Elsevier printers were are, in fact, identified as being Dutch throughout modern literature, but El-Zevir is certainly a Jewish name and not a Dutch name by any means. So this assembly, like the one at Pergamus, was chastised by Yahshua for having a tolerance for fornication. And evidently, some of its members... Have even been, had even been committing fornication. The word fornication can be used to describe various illicit and deviant sexual acts. However, as we have already elucidated, it can be fully demonstrated from scriptures, such as those found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and Jude verse 7, that fornication also refers to what we now call race mixing or miscegenation. In Jude's brief epistle, the apostle explained that fornication is the pursuit of strange or different flesh. That word heteros actually meaning different. Which is how he described the race-mixing events of Genesis chapter 6, which had precipitated the flood of Noah.
That is why the sin of man was so grievous at that time that Yahweh would destroy all of the men and all of their families except for Noah, because Noah was perfect in his generations. He didn't mix his race. In the Old Testament, the idolatry associated with fornication was a full indication that race mixing was the committed offense, and that can be established from Paul's statements concerning the account which we have already discussed here, and from the account itself of the events found in Numbers chapters 24 and 25, where the children of Israel had committed whoredom with the daughters of Moab. This reference to a woman who is called Jezebel here is not necessarily a reference to the historical Jezebel. But perhaps Jezebel is a type for this woman, for which reason she was called by that name, and it is apparent that her sins are very much like those of the ancient Jezebel, who was also a worshiper of Baal. So Jezebel would have taken place in all of those fertility rituals, in all of those incidents of illicit sexual activity. The historical Jezebel, whose name means Baal exalts, or perhaps Baal is husband, both of those being from Strong's Concordance, she was the daughter of Ethbaal, whose name means with Baal. Ethbal is known as Ithobalus in the histories of Josephus. Having had Menander's now lost translation of the ancient chronicles of Tyre as his reference, Josephus related that Ethbal was a priest of the idol Astart, the Ashtoreth of Scripture, who had taken the throne of Tyre by force from the descendants of the famous King Hiram. So Ethbal, while he was a priest, was one of those priest who was arranging acts of fornication and adultery as Tertullian had described and as Herodotus and Strabo also had suggested. We have already described some of the fornication practiced by the worshippers of Ashtoreth in Babylon. While there is no convincing proof that Ethbal was of the stock of the Canaanites, that is a possibility. However, even if Jezebel is only a type for this woman, whatever her true name may have been, we see here that even Jezebel was apparently given an opportunity to repent. It is also apparent here that Jezebel is the model whore, as Joshua himself has described her. This is a fitting analogy. When Israel plays the harlot, the nation is eaten by metaphorical dogs. So in Psalm 22.16, David, in a messianic prophecy which was fulfilled in Christ, was surrounded by dogs because the children of Israel had played the harlot. If the children of Israel had not played the harlot, Christ would not have had to suffer being having been surrounded by dogs in order to redeem them. In Philippians chapter 3, 
Paul of Tarsus warned his readers to watch for dogs, watch for evil workers, watch for the concision. And the concision are the Jews, while Christians are the true circumcision, which Paul professed in the verses which follow, as true circumcision is of the heart and not of the flesh. So quite appropriately, the body of Jezebel the harlot, upon her death, was eaten by actual dogs, as Yahweh had pronounced would happen to her in Second Kings chapter 9. Because of their acceptance of race mixing, this assembly would suffer great tribulation, and now, on account of their fornication, their punishment is announced. Behold, I cast her into a bed, and those committing adultery with her into great tribulation if they do not repent from her works. And I shall slay her children with death. And all of the assembly shall know that I am he who examines minds and hearts. And I shall give to each according to your works. The word for minds is literally kidneys. And often in the King James Version, it is reins, R-E-I-N-S. Thayer defines it in part by saying, as in the Septuagint, for kilia, a Hebrew word which is also literally kidneys. Used of the inmost thoughts, feelings, purposes of the soul, with the addition of cardius, or heart, and he lists where those additions occur. He lists Revelation chapter 2.23, this very verse, and asks his readers to compare Psalm chapter 7 verse 10, Jeremiah chapter 11 verse 20, and chapter 17 verse 10, and Sapientia, or the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 1 verse 6. So, for that reason, we have minds rather than the literal kidneys. The meaning is minds. Here, so the Greek, both the Greek and the Hebrew terms for kidneys were used to describe the inmost feelings, the seat of the inmost thoughts, feelings, and purposes. Here, by asserting that it is he who examines the hearts of men. Yahshua Christ once again asserts his identity with Yahweh God. We read in the 26th Psalm, in an example of the Hebrew word for kidneys, which Thayer did not include, a plea by David entreating Yahweh with a plea to, I should say, a prayer by David <clears throat> entreating Yahweh with a plea to examine me, O Lord, or O Yahweh, and prove me, try my reins and my heart. Likewise, in a prayer recorded in Second Chronicles chapter 6, Solomon spoke directly to Yahweh and said in part, Then hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive and render unto every man according to all his ways, whose heart thou knowest, for thou only knowest the hearts. Of the children of men. In the example which Thayer did use, 
in the seventh psalm, we read in part the exclamation of David that God trieth the hearts and reigns. Yahshua Christ is that God as he is the image of his person. And as we see here, it is he who examines minds and hearts. So because of their fornication, Yahshua Christ had promised even to kill the children of the fornicators. Why would Jesus kill children? He did not threaten to kill the fornicators themselves. This is also contrary to the beliefs of denominational Christians who could not imagine that Jesus would kill children. Yet that is promised rather explicitly here. Race mixing corrupts the creation of God, which was declared in Genesis to be kind after kind. The ancient children of Israel were warned that they would commit race mixing on account of their disobedience, where we read in Isaiah chapter 17, Because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation, and hast not been mindful of the rock of thy strength, therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants, and shall set it with strange slips. In the day thou shalt make thy plant to grow, and in the morning thou shalt make thy seed to flourish, but the harvest shall be a heap in the day of grief and of desperate sorrow. That day is today. So they would have no children in the harvest, because if their children are bastards, if their children are race-mixed, they will never be accepted by Yahweh their God, whose law states in Deuteronomy chapter 23, that a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. Even to his tenth generation shall he not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. We learn in subsequent verses that tenth generation is a metaphor, which means forever. The children of Israel were chastised. Perhaps I should say it's an allegory, which means forever. The children of Israel were chastised for race mixing, where Yahweh had declared in Jeremiah chapter 2, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Then, a little further on in the chapter, the same sin is described with different euphemisms and allegories. And we read, For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands. And thou say, thou sayest, I will not transgress. When upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot, committing fornication in the groves of Baal. Yet I, and Ashtaroth, yet I planted thee a noble vine, wholly a right seed. <clears throat> How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre, 
and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is mocked before me, saith Yahweh God. In other words, when you race mix, you cannot wash it off of your face. Your children cannot wash it off of their faces. So Jesus kills the children. Yahshua Christ answers in verse 21, where he spoke in Matthew chapter 15. I'm sorry. He answers verse 21 of this chapter of Jeremiah, where he spoke in Matthew chapter 15 and said in verse 13, every plant, those strange plants, that strange vine and degenerate plant of Jeremiah, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted shall be uprooted. The distinction of bastard stands under the new covenant as well as it did under the old covenant. As Paul of Tarsus had attested in Hebrews chapter 12, where we also learn that chastisement is not merely the suffering of evil, but rather it is the suffering of evil in punishment for the purpose of correction. Not yet have you resisted as far as blood struggling against wrongdoing or sin, and you have utterly forgotten the exhortation which with you as sons he converses. My son, do not esteem lightly the discipline of Yahweh, nor faint being censured by him. For Yahweh loves, for whom Yahweh loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. You endure discipline, chastisement for punishment and correction. You endure discipline as sons Yahweh engages with you. For what is a son whom a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which you all have become partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Bastards may suffer evil, but they are never corrected. And Yahweh God does not intend to correct them, to correct them as they themselves are violations of His law by their very existence. Here, where Yahshua attests that He will kill the children of those who commit fornication, He is promising to rid the world of bastards and the harvest of your children which you would count it in, as it says in Isaiah chapter 17, will be nothing but a heap, a heap of dry bones. Now Christ continues to speak in reference to the sin of fornication. Now I say to you, for the rest of those in Tuatira, as many who do not have this teaching, this is addressing those who have not sinned in that manner. Whoever has not known the depths of the adversary as they speak, so Satan is a collective entity, I do not cast upon you another burden, but hold fast that which you have until when I should come. So those who have not accepted fornication, 
in Thuatira would be burdened no further. Interestingly, Thuatira was never destroyed in war. And although parts of the city lie in ruins today, and many modern structures had been built, it remained inhabited by Christians until the coming of the Turks. But now, it too is inhabited by bastards. Of course, the modern situation is the result of the fulfillment of other prophecies. But we see that Thuatira lasted as long as the Byzantine Roman Empire had survived. More significantly, here in verse 24, it is apparent that race-mixing fornication comes from the depths of the adversary, or Satan. One who has not committed such a sin has not known the depths of the adversary as they speak. All throughout the ages, it has been the Edomite Jew who has been the promoter and instigator of the integration and mixing of the races, and this is even by their own admission, for they are proud of it. This is the first light in understanding the mystery of iniquity. Once again, the message to this assembly ends with an offer of hope. And we read in verse 26. Now he who prevails, and who keeps my works until the end, I shall give to him authority over the nations. The servant with ten mina was given ten cities. And he shall shepherd them with an iron staff as it breaks ceramic vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I shall give to him the morning star. He having an ear must hear what the Spirit says to the assemblies. Here in verse 27, the King James Version rendered the Greek verb poimahino, which is literally to be a shepherd, simply as rule. The verb for break, tribo, is a third-person singular form which is ambiguous without a pronoun. It may refer to he who is shepherding or to the rod itself, which is the more likely intention. But there is further difficulty as it appears in a passive form rather than an active form. So the King James Version interpreted the same verb as a third-person plural, where it is singular. The passive form more properly describes what is broken, but then one may expect a plural verb since the word for vessels is also plural. So because it seems that some rule of grammar is broken, either interpretation, either interpretation seems to be valid. Ours or the one which is found in the King James Version. And when I say describe here, I mean to refer to what is the subject of the verb or the object of the verb. The subject could be either the staff or it could be he who is shepherding. In the passive, you would think that the ceramic vessels being plural, that the verb would be plural, but it's singular. The ceramic vessels being the object of the verb. And it's obviously the ceramic vessels which are the object of the verb, but a plural 
verb should be used when there's a plural object. So there are grammatical problems here, which may not be the fault of John when he wrote the Revelation, but the fault of scribes who copied it. As for authority over the nations, the children of Israel who overcome shall evidently serve as judges in the kingdom of Yahweh. In challenging the Corinthians, in chapter 6 of his first epistle to the Corinthians, Paul of Tarsus professed knowledge of the same thing where he asked, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, have it decided before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the society? And if by you the society is judged, are you unworthy of the smallest trials? Do you not know that we will judge messengers or angels, let alone the things of this life? This is also revealed in the 82nd Psalm, as the ancient children of Israel should have been judging the world of their own time, but they failed to live up to the obligation. So we read in the words of Asaph, which Christ himself had later cited in John chapter 10. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked, the Jews, the forerunners to the Jews, the Kenites, Canaanites, and Edomites? In John chapter 10, Christ reveals that the children of Israel themselves were the subjects of that passage. Where we read, Yahshua replied to them, Is it not written in your law that I have said, Ye are gods? If he spoke of them as gods, to whom the word of Yahweh had come, which is exclusively the children of Israel, and the writing is not able to be broken, he whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the society, you tell that you blaspheme because I said, I am the son of Yahweh? So with that, we can determine the meaning of that psalm as re- just referring to and describing the children of Israel as the congregation of the Mahdi and as gods who should have been judging the society justly. And by accepting the persons of the wicked, they were not judging the society justly. They were abdicating their responsibilities. This all holds true for Christians today. None of this has changed. The commandments of Christ and the commandments of Yahweh, they have not changed. But here we must have one more digression to discuss what is meant by the reference to the morning star. This is also an answer to the frequent claims, which are found even among identity Christians, that the titles... Eosphorus in Greek and Lucifer in Latin, both of which mean light bearer, are descriptions of some sort of supernatural Satan. We would assert that in the Bible, where it appears only in Isaiah chapter 14, the term is used disparagingly of a single man who was the king of Babylon and who, according to the text of Isaiah in that chapter, made a claim for himself to be as a god. This practice was common in antiquity. 
and it was found among the emperors of Rome, as well as the other great kingdoms and empires which had preceded. Similarly, Egyptian pharaohs and Hittite kings compared themselves to the sun, referred to themselves as the sun on earth, and claimed to be gods. Lawgivers, another role fulfilled by ancient kings, were also seen as bearers of light to the people. In that manner, every Lucifer is a Satan, as man sets himself in opposition to God by making his own laws. While we discussed this subject at length in our Pragmatic Genesis series, in Explaining Two Seed Line Part 25, More Myths Dispelled, here I will supply a portion of one citation from that presentation from pages 307 and 308 of the book Kingship and the Gods, a study of ancient Near Eastern religion as the integration of society and nature by Henry Frankfurt, first published by the University of Chicago in 1948. And in one particular paragraph he said, in part, because I'm trying to keep this brief, in Mesopotamia, as in Egypt, the ruler is often compared with the sun. Hammurabi stated in the preamble of his law, I am the son of Babylon, son, S-U-N, who causes light to rise over the land of Sumer and Akkad. The deified Amar-Sin, a king who is declared to be a god, calls himself a true god, the son of of his land. In Egyptian texts of the New Kingdom, we find similar expressions. Tutmosis III is called ruler of rulers, son of all lands. Seti I, ray of Egypt and moon of all lands. Or, king of Egypt, ray of the nine bows, B-O-W-S. The later being the traditional formula for foreign peoples. The late Assyrian kings often styled themselves son of the totality of mankind. These few examples are representative of many other similar statements surviving in the inscriptions of the kings and emperors of the ancient world. Likewise, in Acts chapter 12, we see an account of Herod Agrippa I, and this is from 44 AD, And upon a set day Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne, and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a god, and not of a man. Herod was then struck dead for not denying the claim and giving God, the true, the true God, the glory. The king of Babylon, in Isaiah chapter 14, who is described as Lucifer, or light-bearer, was in the same situation. But Yahshua Christ alone is the true light-bearer, the only true giver of laws and dispenser of righteousness, and therefore he asserts the only legitimate claim to the title. Yahshua is the life that was the light of men, 
and the light that shines in the darkness, and also the light that was the truth, which coming into the society enlightens every man, as he is described in the opening chapter of the Gospel of John. Yet here he promises to share that same authority with those of the children of Israel who prevail over the depths of the adversary, which is a collective term for the Jews. Thank you for listening. This concludes our commentary on Revelation through chapter 2. And it's already part 5, so I'm sure this commentary on Revelation, this new commentary on Revelation, will probably be much longer than the one which I did in 2011. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.